You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. In that classic original Ghostbusters film, Bill Murray's character Peter Vinkman is trying to explain to the mayor the dangers facing the city. Dangers of biblical proportions, he says. Dan Aykroyd as Raymond Stantz interrupts him and says, what he means is Old Testament, Mr. Mayor, real wrath of God type stuff, fire and brimstone coming down from the skies, river and seas boiling. And then Harold Ramis, Dr. Spengler elaborates, 40 years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. And Winston, played by Ernie Hudson, adds, the dead rising from the grave. And Bill Murray finishes it with, Human sacrifices, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. One of my favorite scenes. And it's a prevalent conception of God, particularly the God of the Old Testament, that God is a deity bent on vengeance and wrath, a God of judgment and fury. There are plenty of biblical passages to underscore this image with Adam and Eve expelled from the garden, the flood which destroys most of life on earth, Lot's wife who's turned into a pillar of salt just for turning around to look at her home, the people of Israel condemned to wander in the desert for 40 years, Moses being barred from entering the promised land, There's the death of David's newborn son as punishment for his sexual assault of Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband Uriah. There's the defeat of Israel and Judah that's understood as divine punishment for sinfulness. I could go on and on. And certain branches of Christianity celebrate this angry God focusing on a perceived estrangement of humanity from God, insisting that God demands a sacrifice in order to restore proper relationships with humankind. This conception of an angry, vengeful God comes in very handy when such groups seek to disparage their perceived enemies, insisting that whatever behavior or issue that they personally find offensive is also offensive to God and will bring on God's wrath. We see this response often when disaster strikes. Early on in the COVID pandemic, John Piper was asked what he would say to pastors preaching about the pandemic, and he said, quote, God sometimes uses disease to bring particular judgments upon those who reject him and give themselves over to sin. And then he went on to say, God sometimes inflicts sickness 
on his people as a purifying and rescuing judgment. Or consider the preacher Robert Jeffress who warned, quote, all natural disasters can ultimately be traced back to sin. Or consider Ralph Drolinger, who used to lead Bible studies for the previous president's cabinet members, who wrote a blog post arguing, quote, America is experiencing the consequential wrath of God, end quote. And then his blog post went on to elaborate what he considers the five forms of God's wrath. Now, in response to this distorted and destructive view of God as vengeful, other branches of Christianity are eager to proclaim that God is a God of love. One defined so beautifully by the writer of 1 John when he says, quote, God is love and those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. Unfortunately, what we often tend to do is an overcorrection from the angry God image and what we come up with is this image of God that is watered down, a platitude, a saccharine, sweet, mild-mannered God. Which reminds me of another movie, Dogma, in which an icon of Buddy Christ is introduced. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but George Carlin plays a Catholic cardinal who decides that the crucifix is just wholly depressing. And modern times require a new image, and so he unveils a new icon which he calls Buddy Christ, which is a statue of Jesus with a big grin, giving a thumbs up with one hand and pointing out with the other hand and winking. And then Buddy Christ becomes a bobblehead and sits on the dashboards of cars, mindlessly smiling away, always in the affirmative. In addition to this common perception of God as vengeful and the corresponding God is love alternatity, as Christianity evolved from a Jewish sect in the first and second centuries and it entered into its own identity as a new religion, its founders started to embrace Greek concepts of God. Partly to gain respectability in their time, partly because that was the intellectual environment of those early church leaders. And so we find that Greek ideas of God become woven into early Christian theology. Ideas such as God being omniscient, all-knowing of the past, present, and future, that kind of idea gained traction. God became one who is incapable of being surprised because God knows everything. Other Greek ideas also entered into Christian theology. Divine omnipotence, God is all-powerful, of a divine creator creating out of nothing, of God as perfect and good, the highest good. These ideas become prominent within Christianity, ideas not found so much in the Bible or in early Judaism, but in Greek thought. Which brings us to our reading from the book of Hosea today. Here we do not encounter a simplistic character, characterization of God as vengeful or all-loving. 
And nor do we find those familiar Greek concepts of omnipotence, omniscience, divine perfection, or unchangeability. What Hosea gifts us with is a complicated God. A God not easily defined. A God who refuses to be boxed into our preconceived notions of divinity. Rather than give his readers propositions about the nature of God, the prophet Hosea instead turns to the language of poetry, inviting us into a work of prophetic imagination, putting forth in some of the most powerful images in scripture an evocative reimagining of God, rooted in an understanding of the relationship of God to God's people as the relationship of a parent to a child. Now, first, some background. Hosea is a prophet of the northern kingdom. He has lived through the reign of Jeroboam II. He has seen the destruction of much of his lands by Assyria. Damascus has been destroyed, leaving only Ephraim and the city of Samaria. The king will make appeals to Egypt for rescue, but those will not work. And eventually the land will completely fall under Assyrian control and the kingdom will be lost. And Hosea and the people to whom he writes are living under enormous turmoil, without security, under extreme economic hardship. The world as they know it is falling apart. And Hosea, as do many of the prophets in Hebrew scripture, sees a connection between the worship of idols by the people and the injustices that are occurring in their society. In his view, as the people experience prosperity, they turned from God and their greed overcame them. They created idols of their own with silver and gold, and in his view, their religious practices became hollow, devoid of authenticity. He points a prophetic finger at the people saying, you have plowed wickedness and you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your power and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall rise against your people. I mean, honestly, if you read the entire book of Hosea, he seems to relish in the depictions of destruction of the people. And most of the book, I will argue, is not for the faint of heart. In Hosea's view, the future is bleak. Unborn children will be lost. The people will wander without hope. Their country will be ravished. There is no chance for return. There is no future. And yet, and yet, in the midst of this horrific vision of what is to come, Hosea offers this little poetic break in chapter 11. And the prophet speaks a word from the Lord, imagining an inner conversation that God has with God's very self. In it, God reminisces. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Hosea then gives us a heartfelt narrative of God's compassionate care for God's child Israel, writing, It was I 
who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down and fed them. The images are powerful. It's a moving poem recounting God remembering throughout the centuries God's deep love for Israel as a parent cares for an infant, a toddler. Notice all of those I statements. I loved, I called, I taught, I took up in my arms, I bent down. This is a God who is engaged, who is committed in this relationship with the Hebrew people, imagined as a young child leaning on God, learning to walk, totally dependent upon the Holy One. Of course, we all know the trouble with children is that they turn into teenagers. And God feels deep pain when the people reject God's care, running away from home with their choices that bring destruction. Hosea even has God complain, saying, my people are bent on turning away from me. Parents, can you identify? Can you hear the frustration in those words, the despair? Hosea is giving voice to God's anger. As the people willfully turned aside from God's ways, God is willing to reject their belated calls for help and leave them to their own fate, letting them be destroyed at the hands of Assyria in a divine expression of tough love. And then, Hosea, in one of the most poignant passages in Scripture, portrays yet one more turn that God takes. In the middle of this remembering of how things were and now how things have turned out, God stops. God ponders, reflects, and debates within God's self, giving voice to that internal dialogue. Hosea has God cry out, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulun? Do you hear the anguish in those cries? Here Hosea gives us a powerful image, not of an angry God or even a buddy God, but of a conflicted God. Will God allow Ephraim, Israel, to be destroyed just as Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for their lack of hospitality to heavenly visitors? If we had been reading the entire book of Hosea, the answer would seem to be clearly yes. God is very willing to turn a deaf ear to the people's cries, to let them suffer the consequences of their own choices. We see time and again God's frustrations with the people are boiling over. God, Hosea thinks, will not save them from their fate. But here, in this poem, Hosea pauses and gives voice to what one scholar calls, quote, Yahweh's own sense of profound emotional turmoil. Crying out, my heart recoils within me, my compassion grows warm and tender. 
The Hebrew word recoils is the same verb used for overthrow of Sodom in the 19th chapter of Genesis. This is a disruptive verb. There's an upheaval going on within the very heart of God. God is having what another writer calls, quote, heart problems. This is not the God of the Greek philosophers. Nor is it the caricature of the fire and brimstone God of Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And we must admit, this is not the best friend God of much of modern American Christianity either. Hosea is giving us a glimpse of a God who breaks all the rules that we have carefully set up for God. For Hosea, God is... A God whose anger stirs at injustice and cruelty. And God is one whose compassion pulls God toward mercy. And God is one who holds both righteous anger and love together tenuously and, I would argue, imperfectly. Hosea paints a picture of a God experiencing this inner emotional turmoil and a divine decision is formed in the midst of that conflict. God stops in God's own tracks and says, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Why, we might ask. You've got every good reason, God. Why not? God goes on to say, For I am God and no mortal. The Holy One in your midst, I will not come in wrath. Torn between vengeance and love, Hosea has God stop and reflect on God's own identity, saying, I am God, I'm not one of you. And then goes on to say, I am the Holy One in your midst. In your midst. God is not removed. God is not transcendent, separate from us, but is instead in the middle of the people, in the middle of this great big mess that they've made for themselves. And even as destruction looms on the horizon, God is fully present with them. For Hosea, God is both judgment and grace, destruction and life, fierce anger and abiding love. And yet, before we think this makes God a warm, fuzzy deity, Hosea goes on describing God as one who, quote, roars like a lion. And when God roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. Trembling like birds from Egypt, Hosea writes. I think of my dad's cough. My dad had a way of coughing. And no matter where we were, we knew that it was time to come back home. In one sweet, quiet promise, God goes on to say just that, and I will return them to their home. God roars and the people run and then God returns them to their homes. God is the actor in this passage. 
Here we find that the God of Hosea is breaking that contractual cycle of relationship, that one that humans so often set up for our relationships with the divine. Oh God, if you'll do this for me, then I'll do that for you. It seems humans always grasp at the contract in relationships, whether it's with God or in politics, at work, in our families, even within ourselves we do that. How often do we set up rewards for our own good behavior? But here God says, I'm not playing by any of these contractual rules anymore. I am God, I'm no mortal, and I will not come in wrath. I find in this poem a powerful example of divine self-reflection. A beautiful portrayal of God struggling within God's self. Here Hosea pictures for us the process of reflecting upon oneself and one's actions happening in the very person of God. Where have I been? God retells the story of where God's been. What am I feeling? God honestly relates God's feelings and emotions. What am I doing? God asks. What have been my responses so far in this experience? And then God says, what will I do differently to be my true self? And that's the key. That's the turning point in this story, the moment when God chooses to change direction. Hosea's God breaks out of the theological boxes we often construct to contain the holy, to manage God in some way. The poem is a breath of fresh air, which invites us to complicate our understandings of the divine, not simplify them. Here is a God who is committed to relationships with humankind, to each one of us who is frustrated by the injustices that we perpetuate, who struggles with how best to respond to us, and who throughout everything chooses to remain in relationship, to act out of divine love and not holy vengeance. Perhaps this poem can be a call for us too, a model as we respond to the pulls of our common life together. Because life is complicated, isn't it? Relationships are difficult. Our role in society is often conflicted. But we can follow God's lead here. We can begin by telling our stories, just as God does, without flinching. Naming our relationships, our commitments, our loves. And then we can move on to the second step, honestly speaking of our feelings, our frustrations, our disappointments, our joys and hopes. And then thirdly, we can look at our actions. How are we choosing to be in this relationship, in this turbulent moment in which we find ourselves? And then just as God does in this poem, we can change. We can change how we respond according to our truest, most authentic selves. 
Hosea has gifted us with a poem that unveils new possibilities in the divine human relationship. As people who have been called by God, who are claimed by God as beloved children, we can declare with confidence that God calls us into life into life lived abundantly, to a life lived with the Holy One here and now in the midst of us. And that is good news. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.